So let's turn to Hosea chapter 2. In um, Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home, uh, part of the uh, Gilead, it's not a trilogy, is it? There's one more now, whatever that is, a forology. Uh, I'm sure there's a better word for that. Uh, anyway, in Home, uh, she describes the protagonist, who's a lady called Glory. She is the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. And she uh, describes her standing in the church where her father so often preached, straight and strong, passing the broken heart of humankind and praising the loving heart of Christ. I love that as a description of preaching. I think that is wonderful, particularly preaching the Old Testament, actually. Uh, And in Hosea's prophecy, we do see past, analyzed, laid bare what broken, sinful human hearts look like, including our own, actually. And that might be painful, but much better to allow the light of God's word to shine than hide in darkness. It's better, it's always better to go to the doctor and get their diagnosis rather than living in denial, isn't it, really, as much as we don't like to do it. But more than just highlighting our sinful patterns, this book reveals over and above that the loving heart of God, our Lord's passion for his people. This is the love that will not let us go, even though it means pursuing us to the ends of the earth, or or rather perhaps pursuing us right into the depths of those sinful hearts. That's exactly what he does here with his people Israel. So I'm going to assume that historical background, the historical context, you've got it in front of you, Uh, that I shared last week with you. God is addressing the northern tribe of, uh, the northern tribes of Israel, the northern nation of Israel, using the marriage of his prophet Hosea as a dramatic and painful for Hosea, at least a painful visual aid. Because Israel is like Hosea's unfaithful wife, but God is determined to win her back. And so we start the first uh, uh, verses here, verses 2 to 4. Just in case you're wondering, we looked at verse 1 last week. It was tagged on to the end of chapter 1. Plead my cause. This is uh, rebuke, it says in the NIV, but that's better rendered plead. Plead my cause, because it's the language of the courtroom that is being invoked here. That that word is is a, a word that would be used to describe the courtroom scene. It's a strange courtroom because the Lord is is both plaintive, bringing his case, and he's also judge. Um, And he appeals to the children. We had Hosea's children named all those terrible names for his children last time um, uh, that we had. Well, he appeals to the children of the witnesses Uh, children who've witnessed their mother's unfaithfulness. And the picture is of Hosea's marriage, but but of course, it's a picture of of Israel. And you might think of the children as the wider nation of Israel, I suppose, but it's an image. You can't kind of tie it down exactly. 
uh, as to who is what here. Um, the Lord, uh, and he says, uh, rebuke your mother, plead your cause with your mother, plead my cause with your mother, plead my cause, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Now, that's very strong and it's a bit strange because the Lord doesn't actually want to dissolve his marriage commitment to Israel. The whole thrust of the book is that he will not go back on his marriage vows. Rather, he's saying, I think he's saying, she's acting like she's not married to me. And he's saying, is this really the path she wants to take? And instead he pleads, let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Now remember, or you can see this on the piece of paper, Hosea's wife, most likely, he said to her, go marry, an adulter go marry a prostitute, go marry a whore, basically, is what he said to Hosea. Uh, and we looked at that, and... Uh, uh, it's probably most likely that um, Gomer, Hosea's wife, had been um, taken up with the um, sexual practices surrounding the cult of worshipping Baal. Um, and there were a lot of sexual practices um, caught up with that. And it seems most likely that that is how Gomer, his wife, was drawn into prostitution, actually. Um, uh, and, but the point about this, this would have had certain markers. She would have worn certain things or had certain things about her that would have shown her to be involved in this. Maybe a headband or a necklace or makeup, maybe. And so the Lord is appearing, appealing to Israel here to remove all association of worshipping other gods. Get rid of them. To return to following him following him wholeheartedly. Of course, it's no good removing these things if they carry on. He wants, them, he wants her to remove these things as a symbol of her heart going back to him. It's a call for radical repentance. But as uh, Derek Kidner comments, Israel, like many of us, is readier to say she is sorry than to make a clean break with her way of life. Verses 3 and 4, well, something has to give here. Otherwise, I will strip her naked. Israel has cheapened herself. I think this is the point of these verses. She's cheapened herself by chasing after the Baals, the foreign gods. And so the Lord's punishment will be to expose that cheapening. It was the husband's duty to provide food and clothing. And these are the things the Lord threatens to remove here by stripping her and leading her into the desert um, uh, and these are particularly apt consequences, as we'll see. He says, again, such strong words, he says, I will punish her because her misplaced faith will hit a brick wall. Now, remember, Israel, uh, when, when Israel came into the land, um, they were supposed to get rid of all the foreign gods, but uh, they didn't get rid of them all, and the temptation of having them around was too much. They got hearts got drawn off after them. It wasn't that they were totally rejecting Yahweh, at least not in their minds. They were still worshipping the Lord, Yahweh, but they also wanted to curry a bit of favour here and a bit of favour there with these other gods, just in case these other gods really did have influence over this area. They were the local gods. They might have influence. And so, you know, don't want to get on the wrong side of them. Just in case, it's better to stay sweet with them, to hedge their bets. And that's what they were doing. 
um, just in case they did have the power to make them fertile and prosperous. And so verse 5, um, uh, Israel was looking to Baal, to these other gods, to provide for her. That's the point. I will go after other lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. She, Israel thought that these other gods could provide this. But as we saw last time, the one true God, the Lord, he is the true source of all life, of food, drink, clothing. It all comes from him. And so God declares that he's going to frustrate Israel by withholding these things. And then maybe Israel will come to see that Baal cannot provide what she thinks he will provide. Verse 6, the Lord will hedge her in, I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she cannot find her way. Um, so she becomes disillusioned. Uh, verse 7, um, and then she will say, she'll chase her lovers but not catch them. Then she'll say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Well, it's not a very noble reason for turning back to the Lord, is it? But it is a start. Verses 8 to 10. Um, she's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain and so forth, lavished on her the silver and gold. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine and so forth. I will take back my wool and my linen. I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. Israel is being stripped of the things she thinks she will get from Baal. That's what's going on here. Verse 11, I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, new moon, Sabbath days. Now, what are these referring to? Are these the festivals where Baal is worshipped? Well, Sabbath days weren't, were they? They were certainly um, uh, ordained by the Lord, and he had ordained other festivals as well. So, but here's the thing. Truth be told, even the festivals ordained by the Lord had now become so shot through with adoption of these other pagan practices. Uh, uh, they'd been syncretized by those other things that were going around. Uh, that actually, the Lord, he's heartily sick of them. Even though he ordained them, he's heartily sick of them. Because God is not fooled. And this is something for us to remember as we gather Sunday by Sunday. God is not fooled as they honor him with their lips only. Just as he isn't fooled by us. Coming along Sunday by Sunday, singing heartily, looking so spiritual if we then go away and act just like everyone around us, ignoring the Lord day by day. He's not fooled. We can scrub up pretty well, but he is not fooled by our Sunday best. He's not impressed by that. Verses 12 to 13. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees. He's, he's going on with this theme. Again, the theme of frustration, of hedging in. Um, this thicket uh, where they're trapped. This is the Lord chastening them, disciplining them, as we do when, with our children, when we want to help them learn. We don't just let them have what they like or do what they want. We hedge them in to, to, to help them to learn the lessons. Verse 13, 
verse 13. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baal, incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. She got all prettied up for her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. That's a devastating last line, isn't it? You can feel the Lord's pain at that. Do you see how this exposes sinful hearts? Ours, as well as Israel's. Everything we have, every single breath, every single blessing comes from Him. And yet Him, we forget so, so easily. So quickly, we worship other things. We go after the other gods, our careers. We think they're going to provide for us. So we run off. That becomes the number one priority for us. Or we look to human relationships. We look to our lovers in one form or another to deliver what only God can deliver. We look to them to bring us security and significance and we put them first, we put them before following the Lord. Or our leisure activities, yes, sports, or shopping, or drinking. I can't imagine shopping as a leisure activity, but it works for some. Or celebrity gazing in some form or other, because we somehow think these things will deliver satisfaction that they will improve our quality of life. They will give us the very substance of our lives, but they cannot do it. Those false gods, they're no gods. They cannot deliver. Elders met for prayer this week uh, on Zoom, and David, uh, David Marritt prayed at one point, true satisfaction comes from knowing you, Lord, and by being known by you. That's right. I liked that. True satisfaction comes from knowing the Lord and being known by him. Life comes from the Lord and everything that sustains life. And if we look to those other things, friends, we'll end up frustrated and, and burdened, and weighed down, and ultimately disappointed. But the Lord, this, is, this, this sounds harsh, it is harsh, but this, this is mercy by the Lord, because the Lord in his mercy allows us to be frustrated as we pursue these things, so that eventually the penny might drop. Some of us are so stubborn, aren't, aren't we? We just run at that brick wall again and again and again before we realize, look, you know, <laughs> maybe the Lord's trying to tell us something. But wonderfully, this isn't the only strategy he has for winning us back. Because then we get the wooing, the Lord's determination for renewed relationship. Alongside the stick, you might say, there is the carrot. Having got Israel's attention, he will woo her. He'll speak tenderly to her, it says. Literally, 
he will speak to her heart. He speaks to her heart. Showers her with lover's gifts. Uh, also, in verse 15, um, it's what lovers do, isn't it? They give each other gifts. It's what the Lord is going to do. The Valley of Achor, that was the place you may remember, uh, where uh, the place of Achan's sin back in Joshua. Um, when he withheld some of the spoil from the Lord, he buried it and wanted to keep it for himself. Uh, a, a place of stubborn refusal to give the Lord his due. Well, that needn't be Israel's final resting place. It can become a door of hope, says the Lord. Verses 16 to 17, in that day you'll call me my husband, you'll no longer call me my master. Baal means master or Lord. Um, any worship of false gods ultimately leaves us burdened and enslaved to a cruel master. It does. But the Lord wants, yes, we call him Lord, but he wants more than a servant-master relationship with his people. He wants to renew this relationship of marriage. He talks here about making a new covenant, uh, this new covenant actually will lead to restoration in the creation order too. Um, and even peace with surrounding nations. We could talk a lot more about that, but I haven't got time. Verses 19 to 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Betrothal. Betrothal in the culture of the day, this is written, that went much further than engagement does in ours. It was a firm and final commitment. And it came with a bride price. That was a considerable sum paid to the bride's father. Well, that's very interesting as I've been meditating. It's interesting to me that we've chosen to do Jose. <laughs> Katie? I think we missed a trick here. This is thoroughly biblical. There's a bride price. Now, this is uh, any illustration uh, has its limitations, and, and uh, here there's no bride's father as such. Israel is the bride. The Lord pays this price to the bride herself, and what a price it is righteousness, justice, love, compassion and faithfulness, all aspects of the Lord's wonderful character, of course, all expressions of his heart for his bride. And he promises to bestow these on Israel. Well, there's several ways you could think of that. Uh, we think about bestowing righteousness on Israel. We might think of him bringing Israel into a right relationship with him. But I wonder if there's also a sense that in this new covenant of marriage, not only will Israel receive the Lord's righteousness, love, and so forth, but actually the Lord will reproduce these things in his bride. After all, these are the very things Israel lacks. She runs after other gods. She's certain she's very unrighteous. Injustice is rife. As you see, if you read the contemporary... Uh, Prophet Amos talks a lot about that. Uh, she lacks love for the Lord. She lacks compassion for each other. In short, she's unfaithful 
to the Lord. She needs these things. But in this renewed marriage commitment, under this new covenant, the Lord promises to enable Israel to be faithful. This is at the heart of his new covenant promises elsewhere. Ezekiel, yes, we do, we do have Ezekiel in our Bibles here. I think it may have got missed out earlier. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He's not just going to make them legally righteous. He's going to change their hearts so they can act righteously and act faithfully. This is the promise. And then Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. In other words, it's not just a piece of paper to be, you know, technically obeyed. It's something they want to do inside them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That sounds familiar with some of these verses, doesn't it? And verse 20, uh, just going back to verse 20, it says in the NIV, I love the NIV, I don't want you to make, make, make you think that I'm giving it a hard time, but you will acknowledge the Lord, that should, that's better rendered, you will know the Lord. You will know the Lord. It's not just about acknowledgement, it's about relationship, just as in those verses we've just read. Verses 21 to 22, and now the Lord responds again with presumably here the promise of um, the promise of rain from the skies, promise of rich provision uh, of prosperity and fertility and so forth here again. Um, and verse 23, now as we saw this last week, we have... Um, the reversal of the um, of the uh, of those dread the curse of those dreadful names. Remember Jezreel, that was the place of massacre. Imagine being named after a place of massacre. But it was also it also means God sows. So it talks about he he's kind of redeeming it here. Here is God. He's going to make the make them fruitful again. Um, God sows. They were not loved, not pitied. No, he shows his love. And to low Ami, not my people, he declares, you are my people. Now, we saw last week how this verse is picked up in, uh, we looked last week of how it's picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2. Once you had, and applied to those gathered in Christ's name, both Jew and Gentile. Well, interestingly, it's also quoted in Romans chapter 9. Uh, Romans chapter 9, Paul is addressing the perplexing question of how will God, he's talked about the glorious gospel, but how will God honor his promises to Israel when Israel, or many, many Israelites at least, seem intent on rejecting the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of all God's promise, promises? How is he going to stay faithful to his promises if they're not going to listen? And, and Romans 9 to 11 deals with that in, in depth. Um, but uh, we read there, 
what if he did this? What if he, he's uh, chosen some of not others? That's the context of Romans 9 here. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he had prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. God will honor his promises to Israel somehow, whilst gloriously opening up those promises to Gentiles who turn in faith to Christ, grafted in to those promises, grafted in to his people, all through faith in Christ, Gentiles and Jews, called together my people. God hasn't forgotten those promises. Now, those of us who are Gentiles, we can become a bit Gentile-centric about that, but we should still be praying with passion, with fervor, for God to honor those promises by drawing in more of those people descended from Abraham by the flesh into his kingdom to open their eyes, to show them Christ, to extend, uh, to bring them into, uh, um, so that they are not broken off. Amen, Amen, Tom. I thought you'd be with me on that one. And we should be expecting the Lord to work among them as we pray. Because that is the glory of how God is going to fulfill these, these prophecies. But let's note the Lord's two-pronged strategy here. Because we often see it in our lives too. For those of us, who've been, those of us who, have, uh, who, who God has uh, taken hold of and brought into his kingdom, we see these things at work in our lives too. Because left to our own devices, our hearts stray. I don't know if you've noticed that. I certainly have. Am I the only one? No. I don't think so. Left to our own devices, our hearts stray. Even though we know his mercy, even though we know his love, even though we know his daily provision, even though we know the joy of you know, singing his praises and all the rest of it, we find our hearts chasing after other gods, don't we? Do we? We do. Isn't it amazing that he knew that when he took hold of us? I just, you know, it, that's just amazing. If I had to look to that project, I'd have thought, no way. That's just not going to work. But the Lord knew and he's, he's, he's factored it in. And he's working in us. It's astonishing. But if we are the Lord's, here's the thing, if we are the Lord's, he won't just let that ride. If you truly are the Lord's, when your heart starts going in a certain direction, don't think, you know, he's just going to let you get away with that. Not if he loves you, he won't. Just as we don't let our children just do whatever they like. Because we love them. He'll challenge us. He will challenge us. By his word, certainly he'll challenge us. And if we remain disobedient, he'll start challenging us in other ways too. He will. He'll start hedging us in maybe. 
frustrating our plans and purposes, maybe allowing us to undergo trials or suffering, just longing for us to look up once more and to focus ourselves on him again. And, and if we've wandered a long way to come back to him, we only have to take one step, don't we? If that, half a step. He just comes running to us. He doesn't say, right, come, come all the way back and then I'll show you my love. Just that, just that turn to him and he runs to us. But he will frustrate our purposes, our plans. He'll make life hard for us at times in order to get our attention. Now, maybe you know this in your life. It is very important to say, and please, please, please note this. I'm aware I'm speaking to, you know, we, we are feeling a bit buffeted as a fellowship, and I know many individuals here are buffeted. So please, please hear this. Just because you're buffeted doesn't mean to say that the Lord has got something in your life that he's displeased with, that he's trying to get your attention about. Because we're promised trials anyway. As, even, as we remain faithful to him, even as we stay faithful, we're promised trials in this life. But certainly, I'm not going to let you off the hook either, certainly there are times when he might be. How will you know? Well, you know, perhaps better than ask, rather than ask, is he disciplining me? Because that's what we're talking about. Rather than ask that, it is wiser, I think, simply to allow the trial, the frustration, whatever it is, to drive us to the Lord. And as we do that, he will absolutely soon make clear if there is something that is wrong and has to go. Usually, let's be honest, usually when he is disciplining us, it's actually pretty obvious to us what's wrong. That's been my experience, at least. But all hard times can have that purpose of driving us closer to the Lord. Now, here's the scary thing, they can also have the opposite effect. Depending on our hearts, we can become sullen and sulky towards the Lord, towards him. We could start avoiding him and avoiding his people because he hasn't given us exactly what we want and our hearts harden. Or we look up to him and run to him, which is far, far better, isn't it? And then here's the other prong of his strategy. It's not actually his strategy, I don't think. This is just him simply (laughs) expressing his heart for us. He speaks tenderly to us. He speaks to our hearts. He reminds us of his passionate love for us. He shows us his delight in us. And then as we turn, there's the joy of faithful obedience. Do you know this? When he's asked you to do something and you think it's quite hard, but you step out in faith anyway, and there's just joy in that, even though it's still quite hard. We don't earn his delight with our faithful obedience, but as our hearts are won over by his heart, then we listen, as we listen and we follow, so his delight in us becomes clear. I think that we could say that. Because there's nothing between us. We find ourselves delighting in his delight of us, which delights him even more. Isn't that amazing? Just the dynamic of this. And he's so gracious. He is so, so gracious and often so gentle with us. You know, I've known times when he could have struck me down for my sin. And instead, 
he's bathed me with his love, which has melted my heart and given me the strength to turn. That's so gracious, so gentle. Gives us the motivation for change in that way. What is the thing, that prompts me to ask, what is the thing that will stop me sinning from going in another direction? What is it? Well, maybe the, Lord's thre- maybe the threat of the Lord's discipline, that's a scary thing, none of us wants that. Maybe that will stop us to some degree. Maybe feeling shame, I know if, you know, you knew some of the things I've been up to in my life, I'd be pretty, feel pretty ashamed That restrains us, doesn't it? These things restrain us somewhat, but they're based on fear, which can only take us so far. It doesn't really produce an inner godly desire. The real motivator, certainly for me, is that however much a particular sin might seem to offer me or appeal to me, Actually, at the end of the day, I want Jesus more. I do. I want him more. I want to know his delight. I want to bathe in it. I want to gaze on his glory, his beauty. And sin in my life stops me doing that. Now, I can't pretend that's always so much in focus for me that I never stray. Of course not. But I know this is what it does it for me. This is what stops me. Jesus is better. Whatever that thing offers you, whatever that God offers you, whatever that sin offers you, Jesus is far, far better. And he loves you in a way that God, that thing, just doesn't. He's always better. So when you feel feel yourself to be hedged in, perhaps you do now, I don't know, instead of burning in frustration, look up and see what God is showing you, and run to him. And when you hear him speaking tenderly, speaking to your heart, respond to him with love and faithfulness. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your heart, for us, your people, for your passion for us, for your determination As you say here, no one will take her out of my hands. Lord, we're astonished at your love for us. Lord, we're so thankful. Father, you know where we are, each of us. I I pray that nobody will go out this morning feeling false guilt or unnecessarily unsettled. But I pray, Lord, for those who do need to hear your particular word for a particular thing in their life that they will hear that specifically and clearly 
You will give them strength to respond in repentance. And then you'll just bathe them in your love, Lord, I pray. Please do that. And Lord, for all of us, just help us to respond to you with that committed faithfulness that you promised to give us in Christ by your Spirit so that we give you glory and love you with the love that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.